Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. What's up, y'all? Welcome to another fabulous episode of Small Doses. Um, we are nearing the end of what for many has been the worst year ever. Uh, and I know people who have lost family members to cancer, but have said 2020 did a different, it had a different effect on them. Um, and I think one of the positives of this year is that there became this like necessity for a lot of people to speak louder than they ever have before in terms of like speaking sense into the seemingly endless ether of ignorance that has become, sorry, my dog is chewing on a bone on a loud wood floor. Um, that's become like the American landscape. And for me, that was very frustrating to see just how much foolery had been going on. But then there would be these little glimmers of light where I'd be like, Oh, look, someone who's not an idiot. And one of those people was, Jesse mechanic. And it's even better when in the midst of an uprising, you see like people who happen to be white, they're like, Hey, uh, I feel like we should address some things. And I learned about Jesse from Jessica Seinfeld's page. So I'm randomly Instagram buddies with, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's wife, Jess Seinfeld. And anybody who knows me, Jesse, by the way, knows like I am a Seinfeld fanatic. Um, so it's very surreal to me that me and Jess are cool. And Jess had posted um, one of Jesse's, I know all the Jesses right here is confusing, but uh, Jess had posted one of Jesse's videos on her page. And I'm trying to remember which video, I've seen so many of your videos now that I can't remember which was the first one that I saw. But I want to say it was on the heels of George Floyd. And you did a video that I was like, really intrigued by because it had the acerbic comedicness that I love, but then it also was a Ted talk. And, um, that is my actual style of comedy. I'm like, my standup is a Ted talk that you're laughing at. Ta-da. Like that's it. Um, and so today on side effects of a woke white guy, I really wanted to just Talk about your allyship. Talk about like, I just want to get into the weeds of you because you fascinate me. But also I think that it would help because it kind of gives a framework for a lot of our listeners in terms of like how they identify allyship in themselves. And for those of us who identify as black folks, like how we see allyship in others, because I think there's also just kind of a, um, I guess like a 
there's kind of a nebulous space sometimes in like what that looks like and like what that actually is in practice. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that was quite an intro. Pumped um, to be here. It was an incredible intro. <laughs> thank you. F- far too kind. So tell me first, um, actually tell me like what made you even decide to start doing stuff on Instagram? The reason I say that is because, so Instagram is its own space now. Yeah. Like it's, it has a different kind of energy before it used to be like, Oh, like you can be funny on stage and then you can go and do like funny stuff on Instagram. And it's like the same thing, but now it's not like, it's a different kind of medium. So what made you like take your comedy to the gram or is that where it started? No, it's it honestly, it was kind of random that it ended up, it just ended up kind of taking off there. I think it was the medium meeting the moment kind of, because before that I wrote about this stuff for years, but, and, and the same stuff. I mean, to be honest, the first bunch of videos that I put out were like op-eds that I had written Mm-hmm. like redone in video form because when I originally put out the op-eds, like they got some traction and like, you know, people of color who I'm friends with really liked them, but like the white people around me were, you know, some of them liked them. Some of them could kind of give a shit, but, right. um, but yeah, after George Floyd, I, because, you know, this kind of starts like, I feel like the main thing is having an education on America and the way it functions and the way it functions now. I think that's like the most important baseline to have. And I think so many white people don't have that. How did you get that? Right. So, so I grew up on Long Island uh, about an hour. I could tell in that one sentence right there. I grew up on Long Island. I know. I know. (laughs) That's the one when I say Long Island. (laughs) really comes through uh but yeah and like you know someone might think that growing up an hour west of like one of the most vibrant and diverse cities on the planet that long island would be equally diverse and it is one of the most you know some of the most segregated school districts in the country so you really have to kind of step out you have to aggressively step outside of your little bubble because you know the the history curriculum doesn't tell you what really happened in in the United States. Of course, that's kind of everywhere. So what happened to me really was tragedy and hip hop, kind of. So I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, my parents were always, they're, you know, left wing people who always really cared about equality and stuff. But I don't know if that alone would have got me to hear and writing about it and really trying to do everything I could. What basically happened was my mom got sick and passed away from cancer when I was 13. And I was lost after that, just Mm -hmm. searching for solace, searching for something. And one of my best friends played me uh, this song in photography, photography class, Crew, just another case featuring Slick Rick. Oh my and, God. And that set off a love affair with hip hop. This funny, so don't you stay alive. Just don't you stay yep, alive. Just, just another case. Of, oh, man. The wrong the, the, wow. Yeah. And that really set off, honestly, then just diving into hip hop and listening to another world, you know, listening like Chuck D and KRS One and Brother Ali and all of these people. Uh, I was like, oh, there's a whole other 
planet. You know, there's a whole other yeah. outside of like the little white Long Island bubble. And that honestly, first of all, I met so many people through hip hop. Like I worked at record stores and I, I met so many interesting people. And then that kind of like, I was totally uninterested in high school after my mom passed away. Everything just seemed so trivial. You know, when you yeah. experience something yeah. really intense like that, when you're young, you're just like, who cares about algebra? <laughs> you yeah. know, it just Absolutely. feels um, trite. Right. But then, you know, fortunately, they like pushed me through high school. I should not have graduated. I barely went. But I, I did really well on some tests. So they pushed me through. I was very gotcha. fortunate. But then a few years later, you know, I was like, I kind of rekindled a love for reading. And I just voraciously mm. started reading everything from fiction to nonfiction. I just became an autodidact. And I was like, you know, when you read nonfiction books about America, then you want to read the books that are cited in those books. And you start reading about housing and law enforcement and education. And then all of a sudden you see the picture. And once I saw the picture of that, like, most of the inequality in the United States was legislated into existence in intentionally along racial lines. You're like, I need to tell people about this <laughs> for real. Like, because, yeah. you know, people of color know this, but like um, a lot of white people don't a lot. And even, you know, other people I've known too, who are people of color also don't, some don't know like the actually how intense it was and is and how it was all kind of a recipe. So once I kind of learned that, I was like, I got to get this out there. And that video that blew up, like my first video was just this rant in my car about de facto and de jure racism and segregation and how they, you know, uh, collide. Give us, give us a, give us a little, uh, a little taste. Sure. So yeah, take a sip of water. Let your palate. <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, so basically, my point in the video was that, like, de jure, you know, racism and segregation is in the law, written into the law. So, like, you know, not that far away from where I grew up on Long Island is Levittown, which is the first suburb in the United States. And it didn't allow black people to live there. And it didn't allow black people to live there, not because, like, the people there were racist. They were, <laughs> because eventually black people did move in and it was horrible for them. But they weren't allowed by the letter of the law, by the grant proposals drawn up. It said black people are not allowed to buy homes here and the white people who buy homes are not allowed to sell them. So that's two levels. That's two homeownerships. And then other suburbs, you know, sprouted up all over the United States. And then, you know, redlining. And then, you know, they they suck all the resources out of these places. And then they wonder why there's some crime, you know, and I'm putting that mm -hmm. in, in air quotes because then the definition of crime always changes once, you know, yes. white people end up do the, doing the crimes. They're all of a sudden not crimes anymore. Which, I mean, look at us seeing like marijuana is now exactly. all of a sudden being decriminalized and it's like... Yeah, and people are getting rich off it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so I just kind of... <laughs> that was just like a quick rant I did in my car on the way home from work. Uh, and then, it, you know, it blew up and a whole bunch of people saw it. And then I was like, well, this, you know, this is great. So then I was like, well, I, you know, I have this article that I wrote about how the term black on black crime is a racist myth, basically. And it's just intracommunal crime, which happens everywhere. So I put that video out and that one did well. And I put one out on 
Like the Civil War was about slavery. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous if you say that it's Suggest not. It's not. Yes. Yeah. And I just, you know, I cited all the declarations of secession and the Constitution of the Confederacy and all that stuff. And that one did well. And then I was like, well, this is interesting now. I don't I don't think it's just the medium. I think it's that people are more open to it, especially white people. Yeah. Because I remember back in the day when I would post stuff about Black Lives Matter, even just a few years ago, people thought I was a lunatic. Right. A rabble rouser. Yeah, exactly. Like it's yeah. So it's one thing to be writing about something. It's a whole other thing to be on camera. So did, were you ever like a, like, I know people who are just like not able to translate what they write to camera. Like I interviewed Nas many times, many times in my career I've interviewed Nas, but the first time was on the radio and there's no camera there. Right. But even still like just even the radio, he was kind of like, uh, 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 uh. And then I had to interview him for my master's thesis. And it was even more like <laughs> one word answer. And I was like, how, how are you not able to answer these questions yeah. like that? And then I was like, you know what? Can I send them to you in an email form? Uh. And he wrote the answers. And they were these like great answers when he wrote them. So like some people, you know, camera is just not their best. They're not able to like translate their ideas as well. So like, what was it that, I mean, have you always felt like, you know, you were, you were made for the camera or like, what made you be like, you know what, it's time to take it to the, to the lens. Yeah. A little bit. I've always done, like, I even had some videos that I put out that were like a little more kind of, they're similar to the videos I put out now. They were just a little more like buttoned up. uh, And you know, they honestly kind of on similar stuff. They just didn't, I don't know, for whatever reason, they didn't take off. But yeah, I've always kind of liked the performative aspect of of being in front of a camera. And I feel like, I, I like how direct it is too. Because, you know, you write something and like, if it's well-received, that's cool. But you're like, you don't get to, you know, it's a little different. It's less personal for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's something that it was kind of a nice convergence of like turning these kind of op-eds into videos where I could add a little bit of flair to them and hopefully, and you know, it's clearly a medium, like instead of reading a 600 word article, watching a video for five minutes, it just seems to get through to more people for sure. Yeah. And it's like that. Exactly. How do you... So, okay. So you're doing the videos, you're comfortable in your skin about like your woke white guyness. What was the response of like, because, you know, I did a video where I was like, Justin Timberlake needs to open his comments because I feel like in the wake of all of these tragic things that were happening very publicly, there was a lot of white celebrities who were like, posting, who who may have decided, okay, this time I'm going to post about it, but they would close their comments. And I'm like, no, you actually need to open your comments because the people in your comments, like you need to see just how wild it really is because I feel like they hadn't, they hadn't ever put their fans to the test like that. So what has been the response for you in your, 
in your um, effusiveness about like these issues, because what is unique to me about how you speak is that you speak directly to white people. Like you don't just be, you're not just like, this is a terrible thing that happened. You'll be like, Hey, white people, you should know about this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've gotten tons of incredible messages from people who are like, I I really didn't know about this. I really didn't know what redlining was. You know, I didn't know about the 100 to 1 crack to cocaine sentencing ratio. I didn't know about the suburbs. I didn't know about any of this stuff. I definitely get, you know, serious hate from people, you know, sometimes when something What are they mad about? Well, I mean... Listen, some of them are just, you know, racist assholes, really. Some of them. So, like, you know, if something takes off, like I've had a few things take off on Twitter and I just have to mute because I'm just going to get like have like it's so funny. Sometimes I'm fine with it. I can be like, oh, look at these lunatics just piling on these comments. And sometimes I don't know if it's COVID or whatever. Sometimes the anxiety you know, it's it just gets in. You catch a few comments that are like really messed up and, and it can be scary. I mean, I put out this, one of the first articles that I had that took off, uh, it, it doesn't age well in the sense that uh, the headline was, if, if a Trump presidency scares you, a Cruz presidency should terrify you because everyone was like, you know, Trump's not going to win, but Cruz could win and he's super dangerous. So that article took off and I had a friend that found... And this was, you know, five years ago now or something. He found this crazy right wing militia board and they were all talking about me and trying to find like my address. And he like said that that was online. And he's like, you got to get this. And I was like, oh, my God, this is now like, listen, I think they were just screwing around. Like, I don't think I was. I think. But it's still, you know, stuff like that does get in your head a little bit. Um, For the most part, the feedback has been amazing. Uh, there's definitely people, you know, there's people, you know, sometimes I'll hop on Instagram and I'm like, oh, this person. And I'm like, oh, they unfollowed me. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. And it happens fairly often. I'm like, oh yeah, what's this person's, what is this person up to? Oh, interesting. So they don't want to hear this stuff. Right. You know, some people are whatever, maybe they're like crazy racist Trump supporters and I could give a shit. And some other people maybe are just like, I don't want to hear him talk about this all the time, which almost pisses me off even more. Why? Uh, just because it's like, that's like the thing, you know, Martin Luther King said that like, you know, the well-to-do, well-meaning moderates like kind of pissed him off more than like the KKK because like he knew what they were about. Mm-hmm. But you like claim to be good and wanting better lives for people, but then you don't want anything to inconvenience you. That's basically that sort of thing. That really, that pisses me off. And I hate, like, I'm almost like, if you're just going to post the hashtag once and never post again, like, why even post the fucking hashtag? Like, that's, I'm not saying, like, I guess it's better than nothing, but it's so barely better than nothing that it's such surface level, like, appeasement of, like, I care, but not really. So how did you get from barely getting through high school to becoming a writer and specifically a writer about these topics? Like, I know you said you became a voracious reader and you wanted to read all these things, but it's one thing to like take in information. It's another thing to synthesize it and then turn it into a career and like turn it into something that you know, actually not only feeds other people with information, but it feeds yourself. 
Right. Well, it, yeah, it's a funny because I've I've always loved writing. So I think it was when I got back into reading, you know, it, it, yeah, it's a funny thing too, because I, I feel like when I was younger, I wanted to like write films. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write movies, maybe write a book or two, but then you get older and it's like, oh yeah, you have to make money, you know? And you I do. kind of, yeah. And all of a sudden though, I was like, wait a minute. You know, when I got a little bit older and started reading, I was like, I can write this stuff. Like I've been writing. I had, I had like little newsletters here and there, like years ago, I had this blog about films years ago. And then I basically started this website myself called the overgrown. And I was like, you know what, I'll just put these articles out there and we'll see if anyone checks them out. And then people started checking them out. So then I blogged for HuffPost for a while. And then I just started pitching stuff. And then it sort of turned into something. Uh, and that's just kind of how it happened. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Watching you think about that. You're like, yeah, now here we are. Yeah. No, because listen, you know, a big part of this podcast is we have a lot of folks who are creatives and who really are often asking just like, you know, how, how to get from like, I like doing this mm. thing to, I live doing this thing. You know, and, and, um, and for a lot of folks, you know, it just seems like something that seems, that's like insurmountable, you know, it just seems like, it's like, how am I going to get to like live doing this thing? And, you know, like, even though you're a white guy in America, which is the top of the, you know, the pyramid, the, the, Mm -hmm. uh, productivity pyramid in terms of like being able to get what you want done. It's still like a cre- the creative space is still always a very, you know, kind of sure. wonky world. And it's not like you were writing about, you know, Ariana Grande and like, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, gossip and whatnot. So when you say that you started the overgrown and you were doing articles on the overgrown and seeing like, if they would go anywhere, can you just, for the sake of our listeners, like, how did you get people to even know about your articles? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. And you know, what's crazy is, so what I do is I basically, I built the site. I made the site look really nice. You know, I had a, I had a friend who's, who's this great designer. And I was like, I want this to look good. So if I get these links out, people are going to go to this site and be like, what is this site that I've never heard of? And the Overgrown is like kind of an interesting name where people will be like, huh, I've never heard of that. And what I did was honestly, I shared a few of the articles on Reddit, which I'm not like well-versed in Reddit at all. So someone was basically Mm -hmm. like, go to Reddit politics and post it. And I post a few and then like 50, you know, I would check my little stats and like the first few articles, it would be like 50 people read it. It's like my friends and some people. And then it was like 48,000 in in one day. And then it was like 90,000 for the same article. But then, you know, still, so then there would be people checking the site, but I wasn't like, I never really put ads on the site. So I never really monetized it that much. I kind of used it just to get my name out there, but it is tough. It, um, it's tough. I mean, I'm still kind of trying to figure out how to put it all together the, the right way and make something. But what I would say to people is you have to just get out there and, and do it. You have to just make it have to make the stuff. And I feel like these days there are so many more options mm-hmm. of, of how to get stuff made. Like, I mean, you know, whether like before it was like you had to have like a WordPress 
yeah. account to have a blog and, you know, all these things. And now you can like build stuff on Wix and Squarespace for like, yeah. you know, nothing at this point. Um, and then like, even with podcasts, um, you know, you can produce podcasts yourself and get it out there. It's just, it's, it's, it is a passion project. Like you have yeah. to really, all of these things end up having to be driven by not just the passion to make it succeed, but the passion to have your messaging and it's for the passion that what you're doing matters. So like when you talk about the work that you're doing and like the teaching, cause all for all intents and purposes, I mean, you're teaching Jesse, you know what I mean? It's like straight professorial. It's like, a cooler Bill Nye about racism. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially. That's, I like that actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, sure. That's, you know, essentially where to me, the path is going. And, um, and I just, so, okay. When you decide like, all right, this is something I want to talk about. What is it? Like, what is your criteria? If any, that you mm. go through to do it because I know like I used to just do Instagram videos just bop, 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 and then I had to check myself because I realized that I was getting like way over comfortable and I was getting like a little like overconfident about what I was saying and not being as open and not being as clear headed about the fact that like, yeah, but what you're saying is going to a multitude of individuals who all have their own perspectives right. and who all have their own ideas and they're going to receive it in their own way. And so I had to pull back and be more conscious about like, okay, I want the material I'm doing to be uplifting. So anything I do has to either be uplifting and positive, uplifting and funny or uplifting and informative. If it isn't fit, if it doesn't fit into those three categories, I typically am just like, yeah, I, I can do without it. Um, now for yeah. you, I feel like if you are a woke white guy, you have a hyper consciousness about the fact of like, what you're saying, the fact of who you are saying it, and then who's receiving it. And that to me creates like a lot of filters. And so I would love to hear like where that lands for you. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of them just like an angle will come to me or, or a topic where, so like, I just put one up on, it's called like the fallacy of of the fiscally conservative, socially liberal person where actually that one, a friend suggested to me, which is the first time that happened, but it was a great suggestion because she was like, everyone in my family always says that. And I immediately, I was like, Oh, I, I got it because that's like Wait, not a real one thing. More time, the fallacy of the uh, fiscally, well, I'm looking at the fallacy of the socially liberal fiscal conservative yeah. saying you're socially liberal but fiscally conservative is like saying you hate <laughs> is like oh, saying yeah. you hate forest fires, but love setting haphazard fires in dry areas in the middle of the world. <laughs> there. Yeah, because basically in the point that I make in it is like you you don't care about quality if you don't care about economic equality. So much is tied into money, like pretty much everything. Mm. So you can't say that's really just like a selfish thing to say. It's like, I like my money. I want these people to be okay, but not if I have to pay higher taxes. And that's like kind of the thing. Yeah. Which for what it's worth is like, like, okay. Like when I hear people talk about like, uh, soon loan forgiveness and they're like, well, what about those of us who paid our soon loans? Uh, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it sucked for us. 
That doesn't mean it shouldn't not suck for new for a new batch of people. <laughs> That's the wildest approach. If people took that approach, we would never do anything good ever. <laughs> I mean, why <laughs> anything? Why anything? Why would you correct anything that was bad then? Like, yes, that, that does suck. I agree. For the people, you know, that paid off their student loans, that's that's unfortunate. That sucks because, you know, it's that's a the bottom line is, too, we can't just forgive because then the problem, the problem is still there that school costs way too much money. Yes. Um, Obviously forgive, but also fix, fix the problem. problem. Yeah, that that drives me crazy. Yeah. And that I I wrote a tweet about that that kind of took off because I was like. And, and this is actually kind of what you're saying. I was like, that is indicative of how people view their relationship to politics, kind of, where it's whatever serves me is what I want, basically. Like, the whole, whether politics is good or bad decides whether someone's politics is how it impacts me. And that's it. There's definitely people, there's definitely people like that. <laughs> I mean, my my biggest surprise with this election was just seeing how many. This election for me did a lot in terms of like. Showing me just culturally, ethnically and racially how politics has broken down a lot of those things in ways that I didn't expect, like. um Like, there's just a lot of folks that I feel like are in my peer group racially that politically were just so far from where I was at. And then on the other side, like there's just a lot of white folks. I was like, Oh, like in the past, I may have just like been like, this is a wall because you're white folks. But then in the politics of it all had to open my space up to be like, yeah, but you get this in a way that a lot of my peers and I don't because of your access. So like, there's just like all of this, um, which for what it's worth, like I look at someone like you and I'm like, the reason why we need woke white guys. And you know, it's not just as basic as like, cause y'all got to talk to the non-woke white people, but it's also because there's certain access that you've had to just information and experience that others who are not in that group don't have access to. And it forms an ability that you have to see things that we may necessarily not have access. Am I making sense? Yes. Okay. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's important for so many reasons for white people to speak out uh, not just to get other people on board, but yeah, just to show it. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to fully articulate it, but I know I was yeah, like, I'm having trouble fully articulating. Yeah, it. but it, you're absolutely. It's it's important for so many reasons. It's important for I think everyone to see white people out there saying and fighting for the right things. Uh, I think that's absolutely important. Um, and I, I also think that a lot of white people, they might not think this, uh, but they put more credence in white voices and white faces. Put a pin in that. I'm letting the dog back in. That is a fact. Yeah. <laughs> and the irony of that is that that's not just white people. That's like right. for a lot of folks, because that's how 
media has presented, right? Sure. Like, yep, 100%. That you can trust this person, you know, and, and, and for what it's worth, I think for a lot of people, they don't even realize that that's what they're used to, right? Definitely. Because yep. so much of our brainwashing happens under a guise. So we don't know that that's what we're, you know, and, and you have to like sometimes check yourself, like, oh, wait, I'm really just giving this person the pass just because this is what I'm used to, you know? And I've had to totally. do that in a number of ways. Um, and I've had a lot of my white friends have to like say to me, like, you know, you've, they were like, you know, Amanda, you've awakened like things that I didn't even realize that I was doing just because sure. of the habit of the American existence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know what to say besides yeah, yeah. Because it's it's totally. and it's trippy. And so when you talk about like that there's a lot of folks who kind of just um value a white voice or and and not and not just value but like trust a white voice more mm-hmm. like how mm-hmm. does that how, you know, how does that feel burdensome? Like, does that feel like more like oblig- ob- obligatory? Like, does it make you feel like, so I need, that means I need to be out here more. Like, you know, does it feel? Um, well, I think, um, I definitely feel like I need to, uh, like, like this is important for sure. I mean, with the feedback that I've gotten over, you know, I've only been doing these videos for, what has it been now? four or five months, something like that. Um, Yeah, the feedback that I've gotten, including like direct messages from people who are just like, write me long things about how they really didn't understand. Like, and, you know. What didn't they understand? They just didn't understand. They just didn't, they had no education about any of this. And it's not that they actively did anything to to harm anyone, but they were doing harm anyway, and they didn't realize it. And I had so many people write to me in so many different ways. And like, I had this video on white privilege that kind of took off because in it, because that one, I just knew I talked to so many people about that over the years and, you know, people just get defensive and I get it because, you know, I, I like remember talking to someone and she was like, I grew up, poorer than poor and foster homes and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm not saying you didn't, you had an easy life. That's not what I'm saying at all. You could have had a really tough life. I didn't have the easiest life. It doesn't mean that you can't have tragedies and all sorts of stuff happen to you, but you're still white in America. So you still have this thing. Again, it doesn't mean that you could have been treated horribly, but guess what? If you were in the same exact position and you were black, there's a whole bunch of stuff that wouldn't have happened the way it happened. And so in that, I just tried to, I tried to give this example of this guy who he's like, I, you know, walked uphill both ways back and forth to work, scraping barnacles off a boat. And then I saved up and I got this loan and I started my own business. And it's like, okay, but a black person wouldn't have got that job scraping barnacles. A black person wouldn't have got that loan to start that job, like all that stuff, all the little things would have been way more difficult, if not impossible. So we should realize that it doesn't mean you're like a piece of shit because you're white and you achieve something. It doesn't mean that. It just means that you're white and you did, you know, you have this 
certain privilege because of that. And other people don't have their privilege. The white color aesthetic is the preferred rewarded thing historically and currently in the United States. And people need to recognize that. You know, why do you like, what is it about your particular way of delivering this messaging that you feel is important and necessary? Hmm. I don't know. I really don't. There, there seems to, I seem to have some sort of a knack for breaking these things down into kind of smaller digestible things. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I edit these a lot. Like some I, you know, will write and memorize and have like a bunch of spots. Others I write and then have a teleprompter uh, oh, and wow. you know, try, try to do kind of little of both. But I really do try to edit it down and keep it light in spots and really serious in other spots and sometimes a little comedic. And I try to throw in like like with with one of the you know, I, I try to explain like the recipe for how everything is in a, most of the videos. So like I'll do like in one of them, I did like a reference to chopped to that show chopped <laughs> where I was like, it's as if, you know, white people are given like all the ingredients and all the time and a top notch kitchen kitchen. And then other people are like, here's a half can of tuna fish and a hot plate. And then like at the end, we're grading the meals as if they both had the same sort of thing. So I think stuff like that, like, um, you know, like the, the forest fires thing, like just kind of some metaphors, I think, to hopefully bring some people in. I think that helps. But I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just, you know, I ask these questions because... Once you come into a space where people are looking to you like for information, inevitably it goes commercial. Like in that it's just inevitable. Like I have had to like bite the bullet on that. You know, that like I really would just like to be an artist and just be out here and tell funny stories and say things. And then inevitably though it gets to a point where people are like okay so like what is the thing you do you know and you have to like be able to speak about it and you have to be able to synthesize it and then also it it inevitably inspires others right Right. and so then in the inspiring others it becomes where you have to have this like not you have to but it's become helpful to me to be able to tell people in a very clear way what it is I do and why I do it Mm. and, um, and set a standard for that before they can kid themselves (laughs) into thinking that it's done lightly. Because I think like when we're in this medium, like I was surprised just now when you told me like that you edit it and you write it out and you know, in my mind, I'm thinking that you're just getting up there and you're just like, you know, you're like, we're like that, but a lot are like, yeah, yeah. But I know like, I had to get more conscious of that too, because I realized people were really watching. So I can't just be talking, even though I'm never talking on my ass, I'm never talking about something I don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. Still like, I felt like, you know what? I owe folks a little more production value. Like, 
You know, like, it's, like it's not just me and my mom watching this anymore. Like it's, it's right. Me and you know, people, and then there's people who are looking to debunk too. So it's like, I also got to edit this shit. Totally. So that, like if I make a Kardashian video, like any video I make where I'm talking about these goddamn Kardashians, you <laughs> trust and believe I have looked at every word I said, cause I know people are waiting to be like, and I'm like, nope. I thought of that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, to be honest, that is something I do too, for sure. I always try to think of what someone would say to a part of it, you know, what someone would shoot back with and then like try to say that in the next, like I even have some, sometimes I have like, it'll go black and white and it'll do a voice and it'll be like, but what about this? Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then you, you know, answer that. That's definitely good to kind of be aware of the potential questions or trolls well, or I all just that stuff. Know, I know that in the role of being a woke white guy talking about these things, you're going to get it from a lot of different sides. And some sides it's like, I get it. I, yes, you do need to question him. And then other sides, it's like just an attempt to debunk just to, de- you know, people are contrarians, right? So totally, yeah. you know, they'll just say things. I mean, listen, I saw a video on Instagram on YouTube the other day that was titled, um, White supremacist Amanda Seals says that voting, and I was like, "What? Is, what? Oh my <laughs> like, God! In what world am I a white supremacist?" But it's like people will know. try to find like something. All of this is rooted in allyship, allyship, like, and so allyship, allyship, allyship. No, it sounds weird when I say no, that. That's a weird word. When I write it, I guess allyship. allyship. Like I want to say allyship, but it's like that's not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not it. Um, for you, how have you seen your? How have you seen your allyship, <laughs> motherfuck? How have you seen you as an ally develop? over the years and like as you've matured as a man and as you've matured as an intellectual yeah that's a great question actually i i think uh, one thing is that i realized that i don't have that i i know a fair amount about you know like the history of the black experience in the United States. I've read about it quite a bit, but then like, as, as I'm reading about it, I'm like, you know what? I really don't like, I know, I know a lot more than probably like 99% of white people or something like that, but there's like so much that I don't know. I mean, there's so much that we all don't know, but like, there's like, I was just uh, a year or so ago. I was like, you know what? And, and this is another thing. For white people, like when you're growing up, it's like there's Martin Luther King. He's an acceptable, like, uh, you know, person who fought for civil rights. And that's like it for real. Like, that's like kind of what you're taught. Like he was the best. And, uh, you know, I'm not shitting on Martin Luther King, of course, but I'm just saying there were a lot of other people. And like, so that's one thing where I've really been like, I don't know that much about Fannie Lou Hamer. Like, I only know a little bit about her. I don't know, you know, I don't know a ton about the Black Liberation Movement, about the Black Panthers. I only know the basics about like even Malcolm X and uh, Fred Hampton and, you know, all of these people where I'm like, I know, you know, where if I ask, I could ask white friends of mine and they don't even really know who a bunch of these people are. Maybe they'll be like, I know that name. I know Marcus Garvey. I know, mm-hmm. call me but they don't know what they did. And I was like, you know, I know some of what they did, but I don't really know. So I think it's important to 
one of the things that I'm really trying to do is ground myself in more history and really learn a lot more about it. Because even like I'd be listening, you know, sometimes some of the stuff you put up on Instagram, I'll be like, I'm going to write down that name. Like you'll, you'll talk about someone and I'm like, I don't, I know that name, but I don't know much about that person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, so that's definitely part of it. Another like Baldwin is one. I feel like white people do not know about James Baldwin. Yep. In the way I feel that black like he, people he's know He's definitely about come up a lot more yes. recently, for sure. But yes, I mean, man, uh, a few years ago, no one knew. It is nice to see. Some of this stuff is nice to see because some of these people who I have been like telling people to read and books to read, like someone was like, can you send me a bunch of books to read about? And I do every time, of course. Uh, but like one or two of the people, I was like, I sent you these books like yeah. years ago. I told you to read these books, but you didn't. But you know what? Better late than never. Read them now. Uh, it's fine. But another thing uh, with the work that I'm doing is I definitely want it to be more focused on like dismantling structures because I feel like like I haven't read a bunch of these, you know, like books that have blown up like white fragility. I haven't read that, but I've read about it. And one thing that kind of bothers me of what I read about it is it seems like kind of corporate sensitivity training type of stuff mm -hmm. where it's like, uh, you know, it's like changing the facade, but keeping the structure beneath completely intact. You know, it's little things. And I'm sure these, again, I'm kind of judging it without reading it, but um a bunch of the stuff mentioned in there, I kind of want more significant stuff. I don't want people to pat themselves on the back for doing little things that don't really make any significant impact. Give me so, an example. Give me an example like, of something that's insignificant and something that's significant. Like, well, okay. So one thing is like, um, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, like doing stuff on social media is important. Uh, for sure. Uh, it is. But like, just if you're just going to post a hashtag and you're not going to learn about it and you're not going to actively do anything to dismantle the way things are running in terms of like supporting with some money or or sharing some causes or helping a movement or getting out in the street now and again, maybe not right now with COVID. But, you know, I think like I I, I've brought some people to protests and everyone who I've brought to a protest has been like very nervous and then like totally like invigorated when they leave, like every time. And they're like, that was like pure democracy. Like that felt like we were doing something like and not just. So another thing is like sometimes there'll be a march and it'll just be like, here's where you guys are allowed to march. You stay here. You go from there to there. And my thing is like, Okay, but really, protesting is about disrupting a bit. You have to disrupt. So I kind of want people to disrupt. I want white people to get uncomfortable uh, with, you know, their little interactions and the bigger interactions and, you know, uh, dealing with themselves and all the stuff that they were a part of and to kind of disrupt uh, you know, the order of things, because right now, you know, like the status quo has to be disrupted. If you, if you just keep the status quo spinning along and, you know, like you have a training at work about like what to say and what not to say, that's good. The training at work, but sometimes these trainings will be at a company that's like 
exploiting people of color for decades. So it's like, all right, well, so they're not saying the wrong things, but the company is still <laughs> shitty as hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So stuff like that, I'm like, all right. But, you know, like Amazon posting like hashtag Black Lives Matter when you turn on the TV. I'm like, all right, but Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion and doesn't do anything to help anyone with it. So what is that really doing? Like, I guess it, it's not nothing, you know, when the NFL puts it on the field. It's not nothing. It shows... A bit, but to me, it's just like uh, it also. But it doesn't inconvenience. And you mentioned something yeah. earlier where it's like, you know, when you were talking about the fallacy of the socially liberal fiscal conservative, it's like, I'm willing to support these causes as long as they don't mm-hmm. disrupt my capitalism. Yep. I mean, that's basically what it is, you know? And I Absolutely. feel like, I, when, when I am looking at allyship as like a metric for somebody, a lot of times it boils down to like, is this a white person who is being vocal enough and honest enough about what's going on right now in a way that could hamper, like could, could affect their privilege. Like that to me is like a very good bottom line. Like I see you out here and you talking all this shit and you got Reddit, you got, uh, you know, people on dark boards, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like we got to get rid of Jesse mechanic. And it's like, I would never want you to be harmed, but I also know to your point, we, the only way change happens is if people are willing to disrupt and if people are going to, um, you know, I would, I I don't even want it. There's no way around it. You have to put your life on the line and it's like your life doesn't necessarily have to be your physical life every time. Right. right? But when you go to a protest, that's what you're doing. You're putting your body in the way of, you know, not in the way of, but you're using your body as a conduit for purpose. Right. And like for change. And then when we as creatives, use our creative gifts in the same way it means something and it's not i i remember grandmaster flash saying to me in 2003 like amanda why can't you just write a bullshit song and buy your mom a house (laughs) and i was like i just don't have it like i don't have the ability to use i this is, I mean, I was about to sound really elitist, but it's like, I don't have a desire. I'll say that. I don't have a desire to use my gifts for bullshit. Like if it is not going to be about social consciousness in some form or fashion or about learning and teaching in some form or fashion, it just feels like I'm betraying. Yeah. Um, no, you clearly, honestly, you're someone I look up to for stuff like that, really, because oh, wow. there is never any bullshit. It's like, And you will say things that maybe some people don't like because like, it's the truth. And, and that's another thing. Like there were some people, like I had a few videos take off and because of who kind of shared them, I got like thousands of followers and they were just like, we're Democrats. Like we love Joe Biden. We love the Democrats. And like, obviously I'm on the left, but I'm like, guys, if you're coming here for someone who's going to like, just he prays on the Democrats all the time. You've come to the wrong place. Yeah. Like for real, you've definitely come to the wrong place. Like I am here. I'm going to criticize them a lot too. Mm-hmm. Because if you think that like uh, they're perfect, especially like the establishment corporate wing, uh, right. you're crazy. So like, yeah, that's, 
another thing, just being true and not not like adhering to a specific brand, being like, I want to speak truth to power. I want to tell people I want to criticize. I want to, you know, make this a better place. <laughs> make this a better place. <laughs> And you have a kid, you know? So it's like, yeah, that's a that really, yeah. Yeah. That makes it even, yeah. It definitely deepens everything. It, It really does. It makes it like, it makes everything kind of more intense because you see the world through, you know, I see the world through her eyes and I'm like, yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have often felt like I hadn't like had a kid like 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 there because I've been reckless. I talk about it in my special. Like I've gotten many periods I didn't deserve. So like the fact that I hadn't had a kid was like I was like I feel like that's the universe being like yeah because you got to talk and if you have a kid you might feel compelled to like. Let me shut up so that I can be safe and mm-hmm. protect this person. And, um, you know, even I thought the dog was peeing on the carpet, even um, even relationships like I've only recent like this is my first public relationship where I'm like out here like this is my man. I'm with this person. I'm not going to tag him because y'all are crazy. But this is. My person. And and part of that is also because, like, I know how I talk. And, you know, a lot of folks can't handle it. Like, I've def- I've had people in relation- like that I've been with before be like, I just, you feel like, I- you don't think you're going too hard at white people? And I'm like, shut up. Like, what? And mind you, I mean, I've dated ridiculous human beings who I'm just like, you're asking me if I'm going to, do you think you're going too hard? At, you're a fucking menace to society. Like what? <laughs> so, but like this person, you know, he can take it. So it's like, you know, whatever. Like he went to Fisk. I mean, it, <laughs> he's like, I, yeah, I got it. I can handle it. So I'd say all that to say though, that like, um, you know, your version of allyship allyship, whatever the ship, um, it is admirable. And I wanted to have you on the podcast because (sighs) this has been a doozy of a year in many ways. Um, and it, it got to a point for me where I felt like there was just a lot of white people around me that had really just had this awakening and wanted to be Sherpa'd through mm, yeah. this awakening. And I just felt very frustrated and annoyed because like you said that you had like given people books to read before. It's like, I'm not saying anything new. Like I've been saying yeah. these things. Um, and then when I discovered your page, I was like, Oh, somebody who has taken up the mantle. And, <laughs> Thank you. And, um, and it is not lost on me. Like, I, like people will tell me, like, Amanda hates white people. I'm like, yes, I hate whiteness. That's what I hate. I hate whiteness and the concept of whiteness mm-hmm. as a qualifier for excellence or for superiority sure. or for access or for equality. You know, and so like these are things that are associated with whiteness in a way that I don't 
associate with whiteness. Right. And so I'm like, yeah. I know that's why I, that's why I started saying like there are people who happen to be white. And even in that phrase, there is a certain level of fallacy. Cause at the end of the day, it's like, you still have the access to this sure. thing and it's still, a, yeah. it's still a label. And so at this point I'd be like, yo, I, I really have like people around me who identify whiteness as a thing, but also identify it as like a thing that needs to go away and that they don't want to identify themselves with. I'm like, people have all this culture and ethnicity that they, particularly white people have an access to their culture and ethnicity that a lot of black folks don't, you know, like they can track their fucking Scottish crest and shit and no, like, yeah, I'm part of the McKinney clan from. Yeah. We also dip into other cultures and just like steal them and whitewash them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're time. like, they're like, yeah, this is my Scottish crest on a public enemy shirt with yeah. the crosshairs, <laughs> you know, like, and so I just say all that to say that I know for a lot of black folks, this has been a very like frustrating time of just dealing with whiteness in a whole other way. And so in my never ending goal to find positivity where it may seem like a glimmer, I was like, you know what? But there are folks out here who fall under the nomen, they fall under the uh, genus phylum of whiteness, but, <laughs> but are doing the work. And it can be very encouraging to see that. And it can be um, very affirming for a lot of us who are frustrated to know that there are folks like yourself who are like, yeah, this is like what I've focused on and what I need to do and, and understand why we're frustrated. And, you know, a lot of the human condition yeah. is just wanting to be seen. Totally. No, thank you. That means a lot, really. It does. And yeah, I always try to, um, to tell I'm like, ask me whatever you want about any of this stuff, for sure. But don't, like, stop putting your burden onto, like, your Black friends, your Black acquaintances, people at work, whatever it is. People do that way, way too much. It's like, you can, you can find this stuff out for yourself. And I also, I just hate when people are like, I just don't even know what to say anymore. It's like, dude, what do you mean you don't know what to say anymore? Like, you can make, like, little mistakes, all right? Yeah. Like, I'm not talking being openly racist, I, obviously. But, I mean, you can make little missteps. But the thing is, if you make a little misstep and someone's like, listen, you shouldn't really talk about it in that way or something, you should be like, oh, shit, you know what? Absolutely. I was wrong, I, and I've learned from it. I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, no one really, unless, you know, obviously if you say something terrible, I don't know. I don't know what I have for you. But if you do little things, no one's going to, like, cancel you completely right. because you're, like, trying to do the work. And, and you know, you've had, like, I just, it well, drives just me humility. crazy. It's just having humbleness, right? Like, if yeah, you're exactly. humble about it, you're more than likely not going to get excoriated. And that's pretty oh, much. You won't. You won't listen to people, you know, educate yourselves, and then you probably won't say that stuff anyway, because you'll, yeah, you'll, you know, you'll know about it. But I mean, there, there's, you know, there's been stuff that popped up, like, you know, one thing that I learned not too long ago was to say enslaved people. Like, that was, 
you know, and not not say the word slave, Slaves, you know, right. when you're like referring to um, and like that's something that I, I didn't really know, you know, until I don't know, maybe a, a year ago or something like that. And so, yeah, th- during like a few of my videos, people would message me and they're like, I noticed you say enslaved people over again. I was like, yeah, because, you know, and then you explain like that you remove the humanity from people when you're just yes. saying um so you know stuff like that and if someone said that and then they're like oh you know what i thought i should have said this or whatever that's okay <laughs> you're <laughs> gonna be okay just do the work you know keep at it uh if you so if Jesse, speaking, like you said yeah well speaking of doing the work and keeping at it like what would you how would you want to see things grow for you? Like, do you plan on doing a podcast or do you see yourself doing, or do you have a podcast? Do you see yourself doing a show? Like where, where does the Jesse, the Jesse mechanic messaging machine advance to? Because by the way, like, you know, it's a lot of British guys talking and I'm like, I'd like to see another American guy. Um, who's actually like sticking it to the man. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying like these, these two, uh, two friends of mine who kind of help help produce, shoot and edit the videos. We've been trying to come up with like interesting way to scale it up and to still keep it with the same mentality, which is like, like, I would love to have a show where it has a piece like the pieces I do now. And it has a section where it's just like a conversation with the, I would like it to be centered around like activism and people working in these movements. The people that don't really get, you know, aren't really interviewed that much. So I would love to have it, to have a show like that, to have some hip hop and some music mixed in and still keep it like a kind of radical, you know, show that really tries to push things instead of just some like another bland show of another white guy (laughs) saying the same old stuff you know what i mean so there's that and then like i have so many (laughs) things that i'm trying to bring to fruition like i've been working on a novel for about three years now i just got it to the point where i'm pitching it where i'm about to pitch it i haven't pitched it yet but the novel is like kind of the story of me growing up with a few friends mixed in with all this stuff and it is this crazy sci-fi thing and it's about hip-hop it's a super ambitious ridiculous 500 word book that hopefully people will be able to buy at some point but what i try to do with that book is i also try to weave this stuff into fiction like i really try to explore what it was like you know so like uh a bunch of my friends that i grew up with on long island we had a bunch of conversations and I was like, you know, it's a, it's an interesting type of racism that's on Long Island, like an interesting, like suburban brand of racism mm-hmm. where like nobody thinks they're racist. It's not always right out in your face. Right. But in a way it's even worse because they, they think they're great and that they're not <laughs> racist at all, but behind closed doors, it is, it's so, you know, it might not be like Confederate flags and stuff like that, but in you know, in a way, it's it's worse. So I try to marry that in the book. So I have all these grandiose things I'm trying to make happen. Listen, to, uh, to I, stuff across. I really, I have been in my head about starting a novel, and the thing that's oh. 
stopping me is the, I'm like, this is going to be so daunting. This mm. is going to be, and like, it's literally, but it, I can't shake it. It's like, you gotta do it. You gotta do it because you know what? When, once you dive in, like you, you'll get that first, getting the first draft done is everything. It's everything. I mean, the first draft will kind of suck. Everyone, everyone yeah, 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 yeah. they're like, the first draft's going to suck. But I finished my first draft and I was like, wrong. Oh, this first draft is dope. <laughs> When I read it about three weeks later, I was like, yeah, it kind of sucks. Um, <laughs> but, but once you have that there, right, right, right. You can like build off it. Like the fifth draft is pretty good. I'm, you know, I'm pretty proud of it. And, you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens, but you should write one. It is a hell of an undertaking for sure. But it also is pretty amazing. Like it's, it's a fun experience too. It's, uh, for me with it. this creative stuff, it's like, if it nags at me, then I have to end up mm. doing it. Like, cause I've had ideas come and go, you know, where you're just like, Oh, I could do this. And I've, during this COVID thing, I've had this weird thing where I have ideas that I can like really easily execute. And so I'm just like, okay, I'll just do that. But then the payoff doesn't feel the same because I did it really easily. And then I'm just like, sure. Oh, I thought I was going to feel fulfilled by that, but it ends up, it's just like, it's very mirroring of the fact that like at a certain point in my life, I was like, Oh, like mindless sex doesn't do anything for me anymore. And now it's like mindless art doesn't do anything for me. Like I have to have more behind it. Like I started doing these drawings recently. Pastel drawings. Thank you. But at first I was just like, Oh, I just need to like exercise my creative hand. But then it became like, no, these are gifts for my friends who have like supported me through, through a difficult time. So now it has like more around it, which now feels like I'm actually doing something other than just like Definitely. playing around on my floor in my living room. And so the novel has that level of texture to it where it just feels mm. like this is, this is something that you can commit to that's going to feel like even the process is serving you, not just the completion. And that is like the thing where I'm at at this point. Like that's what, and that's what, and that's what a relationship ends up being too. You're just like, Oh, like this feels like valuable, even in process, not just in getting, you know, the payoff. And I think for the novel, the fact that as the more I think about it, the more I advance and that's where it becomes where you're like, well, now I got to do it. Cause at first you start thinking about something. You're just like, it's keep having this idea, this idea. But then once the idea starts feeling more like you can do an outline, like this morning I woke up and had an epiphany and I was like, fuck now I yeah. got to keep going. Cause if I keep having these damn epiphanies, I got to. Yeah. Yep. And then once you get in and start going, there'll be so much extra stuff. Like, yes. Uh, and the epiphany the that happened today is enough for me to write an outline. And once you start writing an outline, now you're off to the races. So, and then I come in here with you and you're like, yeah, yep. I have a novel I've been writing for three years about hip hop and, and sci-fi. And I'm like, I have to read that. So hop to it. I know. Yeah, I got to get an agent. If there's any uh, literary agents listening, uh, hit me up uh, because I'm in the market for one as of now. Um, Yeah, but you got to. And you know what, too? As you're going through and writing about it, especially if there's personal aspects to it, and there always is, 
even if it's like, it could be whatever story. It doesn't really matter. You're going to like, there's going to be therapeutic spots in it. Like there's parts in my book. Then I read it like the third time and I was like, Oh shit. Like this is all about like losing my mom. Like this whole space thing that I came up with. I was like, Oh, this is all about that. I like, it's funny. You'll have things like that where you like think that you're just like doing a, telling a cool story and then you're like, oh, wow. And then you'll lean into that more. And like, this is my more. father issues. Got right. it. <laughs> this whole book is about abandonment. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The last dose. Well, I appreciate the encouragement and the insight. Like I always feel like creative sharing their process is the key to continuing process. And, um, I really do. Uh, and by the way, as you're talking about looking for a literary agent, if you continue to do what you're doing on camera, you will more than likely end up with a like digital market, a digital agent, and they will be at an told agency. I should look for one of those too. Yeah. <laughs> and they will be at an agency that also has book agents. So yeah. the other part of all of this is that what I have found is that the people I know that actually are using their craft for a bigger purpose, it ends up taking them to exactly where they need to be for every mm-hmm. other thing that they're doing. And it's ironic because so many people are so scared to do that because they think it's going to impede. And everybody I know who has made it their business to use their craft to be about making all of us each other's business, it ends up creating business for them. Mm, So I send you forth with good vibes and um people you can follow jesse mechanic on instagram at jesse mechanic spelled like mechanic and um and i just i really i really i i appreciate you i appreciate you thank you so much this is awesome thank you and keep writing and doing all the dopeness and we will continue to share and support the dopeness and i just like that you use the word dope so Thank you. And Likewise. you didn't sound like a weird white guy saying dope. Like, this is dope. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> so it that, has, it has old origins for me. So hopefully it sounds, yeah. It does. It sounds very rooted in 90s hip hop. Uh, yeah, good, good, good. Yes. <laughs> nice. And that's that. A podcast network. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.